today from the Global Lane. As the U.S. pushes Middle East peace talks, Israel delivers a forceful message to the Palestinians. You can stoke this program and you can hope for ethnic cleansing of Jews from the river to the sea all you want, but we're not going anywhere. Eastern counties fed up in Oregon. Bye-bye Beaver State. They've left us. They don't care about us. Say it isn't so. Media bias in the Gaza conflict. CNN, MSNBC, their allies always love making the Israelis look like the bad guys. And mandatory vaccination on campus at Rutgers. We are ready to fight back. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Secretary of State Blinken is in the Middle East this week pushing peace talks. He and President Biden support a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians. But will that idea get any traction? Joining us to provide some insights is Rabbi Ari Lam. Rabbi Lam is the founder of the Joshua Project and chief executive of B'nai Zion, an educational and humanitarian organization working in Israel. Rabbi Lam, it's good to talk with you. So, what do you think of Secretary Blinken's efforts offering U.S. aid to Gaza and then pushing to restart peace talks with a two-state solution? I think it's critical, first and foremost, to recognize what this conflict is about, because without knowing what it's about, you can't solve it. What we're seeing here in this recent, uh, in this recent conflict between Israel and Hamas is a conflict between the forces of normalization and fellowship and friendship on one side, um, between Jews, uh, between Jews, Muslims, and Christians in the Middle East, and the forces that are opposing those things, the dark forces that are opposing those things on the other. So Hamas is not fighting, uh, as it so often positions itself, for Palestinian freedom or for Palestinian rights. What it's doing is trying to dismantle all any potential infrastructure, social and emotional or otherwise, for coexistence. So all of the uh, positive developments that you were seeing in the Middle East, whether they were very high profile, like the Abraham Accords, or things that were sort of just below the surface. Like, for example, the first time in Israeli history that uh, that that uh, an Arab, that in fact an Islamist party was going to sit in the coalition with either Likud or Naftali Bennett's party. Um, these are all forces, and not to mention forces right on the ground in Israel. These are forces for fellowship, for friendship, for peace, um, and Hamas saw this as an opportunity to stoke uh, its to stoke rage and anger and hatred amongst the forces that oppose those things. And its most obvious targets in this respect are Jews, because Hamas's platform is fundamentally anti-Semitic and eliminationist and genocidal. Um, but fundamentally, it's targeting uh, Palestinians, Jews, Arab, Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, all, of, all throughout the region, as much as it's targeting uh, Jews in particular. And the Palestinian people don't really realize this. According to the Gatestone Institute, a recent public opinion poll showed 57% of Palestinians oppose a two-state solution. And that's a Palestinian state side-by-side -side next to a Jewish one. The same percentage of Palestinians say they support armed struggle. So in other words, they want one state without Jews, Israel destroyed. So how can you negotiate peace with a majority of Palestinians uh, when a majority of Palestinians have that attitude? I think the an I think the answer ultimately is going to come first and foremost from Israel, uh, and by Israel I mean the I mean the the growing coalition of Jews, Muslims, and Arabs that make up Israel, making clear that that Israel has nowhere to go. One of the I think sort of vicious vicious tricks that advocates for the for Hamas and its allies in the region often invoke 
is the idea that, well, Israel is an apartheid regime or Israel is a colonialist regime like the French in Algeria. The key difference, aside from all the moral, theological, and, and ethical reasons for opposing that grotesque comparison, the, the pure difference between those things on just a tactical level is that, guess what? Jews have nowhere else to go. Israelis have nowhere else to go. So the first thing that Israel needs to make clear, as I think it, it sought to make clear during this latest round of, of, uh, of, of conflict, was that we're not going anywhere. You can, you can stoke this program and you can hope for ethnic cleansing of Jews from the river to the sea all you want, but we're not going anywhere. And I think ultimately that uh, needs to lie at the bedrock of any conflict mediation between the two parties. Israel and Jews are not going anywhere. So how has this recent conflict in Gaza affected the Abraham Accords? You mentioned those accords. How about the prospects of bringing more Arab countries into a friendly uh, relationship with Israel? How has it affected that? So, you know, I've, I've talked about the Abraham Accords often on my podcast, Good Faith Effort, and one of the things that I've been uh, pleased to hear uh, from former guests and from, and from friends of the pod is that there actually is uh, a good deal of energy still uh, powering these Abraham Accords forward. I think we're going to see more normalization. I think we're going to see uh, people recognizing, you know, the, the, the normalization accords, uh, the Abraham Accords, ran on the energy of recognizing that Hamas's preferred way and Hezbollah and Iran's preferred way of dealing with the region is stoke as much conflict as possible, create as much chaos as possible so that they can seize power and dominance. Um, and the Abraham Accords are built in the opposite premise, that the way to find mutual flourishing for all peoples in the region is to invest with each other, to create together, to build uh, to build cultures that are mutually reinforcing, much like you find, for example, in the heyday of King Solomon. You find King Solomon uh, building the first temple in partnership with the other great monarchies of the region, because ultimately we, we flourish best when we flourish together. During the Gaza conflict, we saw a rise of anti-Semitism here in the U.S., mostly in L.A. and New York. Do you expect that uh, that will subside or intensify now that a Gaza sees fires in place? What are your expectations and concerns? Well, ultimately, I think one, one of the things, one of the hard lessons that Jews have had to learn throughout our, our long period in various diasporas is that whatever excuses the dominant culture gives for anti-Semitism, they're just that, they're excuses. And so we need to, what we need to do as a community and as a people and as a nation is excavate what exactly is it um, that is that is driving this hatred, or, or not driving it, because it's it's ultimately senseless. But what is it that's allowing this hatred to fester? And let's cut those things out. Because at the end of the day, um, one of the things that has become clear to to I think uh, all people who care deeply about about American the American Republic is that the Jewish people don't need uh, the Jewish people don't need America. God is we God has made his promises to us, and we keep them as best we can. Uh, but I think America needs the Jewish people. America needs the needs biblical faith and and the Hebrew biblical uh, principles upon which it's founded. Okay, we'll keep pushing forward. Rabbi Ari Lam, founder of the Joshua Project, chief executive B'nai Zion. Thank you for sharing your time and insights with us. My pleasure. Goodbye, Oregon. Hello, Idaho. Earlier this month, voters in five Oregon counties approved an initiative to leave their state and join Idaho. That makes a total of seven Oregon counties that have now approved secession. More may be on the way. So what's going on in Oregon? Well, joining us is Mike McCarter. Mr. McCarter is the founder of the Move Oregon's Border Political Action Committee. Mike, we know that the rural lifestyle and attitudes of eastern Oregonians 
is much different than people living in, say, Portland or along the Oregon coast, but secession, really? Why has it come to that? Well, it, it's a situation where Move Oregon's Border is a grassroots movement that is based on, on faith, family, and freedom. There's a dramatic difference between rural Oregon and urban Oregon. So we decided that probably the best way to do this is to start getting a ballot measure put in to each county in rural Oregon to find out if people really have a desire to start looking at the process of leaving Oregon because they've left us, they don't care about us, and becoming part of the state of Idaho. So this is just the beginning process with it. Well, I want us to look at one of your maps. This month, people in Sherman, Lake Grant, Baker, Mallard counties, and uh, they joined Union in Jefferson counties in voting to merge with Idaho. But I guess initiatives in mm -hmm. Douglas and uh, Wallowa counties uh, failed. Why is that? Well, initially, when we started launching the, the petition request and getting this program going or getting this movement going, uh, you know, we didn't have any idea that we're going to have to deal with COVID issues. It's a brand new message, a grassroots movement with no political support, no financial support other than the people. And to get the message out in the very beginning for the first election was a problem. And we realized that. Uh, now we've, we've, we've overcome that and we know how to reach the people and how to get the message out. And I think uh, the results of that you see in the last five counties, the way that they voted. Yeah, the pandemic has affected everything. So... What are your future plans? More ballot initiatives in other rural counties? If so, which ones? What are you doing to assure a positive response there? Well, we're moving forward with more counties. We have another 10 counties lined up. Uh, looks like we'll probably have another four or five on the next election. At the same time, we're asking all of our counties who have approved this measure to start working with their county commissioners and get the message passed up to the state legislators that cover their counties. Um, the, the vote in the counties has no real leverage other than a vocal voice to the state legislature. Now we need to get it put into the state legislature and get the discussion started with Idaho. Well, I, I was going to ask you about that because I know these ballot initiatives are non-binding. So how likely are your elected officials to agree to allow secession? Wouldn't the Oregon legislature and the governor have to approve it, or can those counties just bolt for Idaho? No, there's a there's a there's a process involved, and and we're following the state statutes, the U.S. statutes on changing borders right down the line. We're trying not to do anything um, that that would create a problem. So yes, it has to go through the state legislature. Then who knows where which avenue that it takes after that. But the most important part is to get that discussion started in the state legislature. It's already started in the Idaho legislature, and they're looking forward to, to starting those discussions. So now, because Oregon's legislature is still in session or recessed or however you want to call it, uh, it's been very hard to communicate with, with the legislatures where they're dealing with, with the issues that are going on right now. Well, you'd mentioned, I guess the governor of Idaho has already said he would welcome Oregon counties into the gem state. And why not, right? More tax revenue for them. But wouldn't the Idaho legislature also have to approve the merger? And how would that affect relations with the Beaver State? 
Well, again, it, it's a it's a three campaign process going on right now, educating and getting more of the Oregon counties involved, informing and getting the Oregon legislature and the representatives involved, and keeping the Idaho people informed on what's going on and, and legislatively what they have to do. Uh, Governor Little has, has been very kind. Um, we've got a good relationship with a lot of the legislators in Idaho. We, I spoke to them um, personally uh, about a month ago in, at the Idaho legislature, about a third of the senators and the representatives. And they were watching very closely how this vote was going to come about on May 18th. And now the message is out that people are uh, unhappy with the way Northwest Oregon is treating rural Oregon and want out from underneath it. Well, it sounds to me like you're going to have more of an uphill fight with your own legislature and your own governor there. Uh, they're not really uh, dominated by people from the east of Oregon. Okay, Mike McCarter, your founder of Move Oregon's Border. Uh, Mike, please keep us posted on how this secession effort progresses in Oregon. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely, and thank you for giving us the chance to share this message. Did Israel get a fair shake from the media during its recent conflict with Hamas in Gaza? Well, our next guest says not only did many members of the media show bias against the Jewish state and their reporting, but some actually aided the Hamas terrorist organization. Here to set us straight is Adam Gillette, president of Accuracy in Media. Adam, it's good to have you with us. So who acted like a PR firm for Hamas during the Gaza conflict and what did they do? Well, perhaps the most notable thing was the Associated Press literally sharing an office building with Hamas and then clutching their pearls afterwards when Israel decided to strike that building, of course, after they notified the media and all other occupants that they would be doing so. And then the Associated Press had the gall to pretend, we can't believe this happened. Why would they do that? Well, they knew they were there. They shot off rockets from that building years ago. These guys would never share a building with the Republican National Committee, but they're probably at the water cooler with Hamas, and they still have the gall to be morally outraged over it. What did other members of the media, how did they report this incident? You know, they reported it the same way one would expect. The left and uh, their allies in the media have been doing the same thing since Vietnam. They allow our opponents to use the media as a public relations tool. When they know they can't defeat our side on the battlefield, they always can count on being able to defeat our side at the New York Times and now on CNN and MSNBC. You see Hamas, once again, as always, using human shields to try to make the Israelis look bad, Israel bending over backwards to avoid killing civilians, even when it means they have more military casualties. But nevertheless, CNN, MSNBC, their allies always love making the Israelis look like the bad guys. It's, it's disgusting. Well, do they ever mention that Hamas and other Palestinian militants fired rockets into Israel from schoolyards, civilian areas, as you mentioned, used women and children as human shields? Uh, I've heard stories about journalists actually being kicked out of Gaza for reporting the truth about that. Of course. And in fact, Hamas supposedly stormed into the AP offices in that building years ago and threatened them that they had to report, should not report about Hamas operating in that area. Can you imagine if a Republican National Committee staffer, if an evangelical Christian activist, if somebody on our side went and stormed in an AP office and told them they better not report a certain way? These same people got so mad when Donald Trump said mean things about them 
But Hamas literally stormed in and threatened them, not a peep from the Associated Press, except one former employee who leaked it and talked about it publicly, brave guy for doing so. It's disgusting. And this is an area where the media coverage is important. When they talk about Trump, most people have their mind made up. But when they talk about Israel, we're not on the ground, we're on the other side of the world. We don't know exactly what's going on over there. Americans don't necessarily have their minds made up. And when the media lies to people, it's dangerous. As a journalist, you're taught in Journalism 101 to remain as objective as possible. We're all subjective beings, but be fair and treat Israel as fair as you would Hamas. So where does this come from? Well, even then, it's hard for me to say be fair to Israel as much as you would Hamas, because one of them is a terrorist who wants the destruction of Israel and America, and the other one, as you said, is our closest ally. But you're right, they should cover things objectively. Instead, that's not what they do. Objective coverage of the story would talk about how it's merely a proxy war for Iran versus Israel, Iran versus the United States. Remember, Hamas is funded and supplied by Iran. So that's the narrative I think an objective journalist would lead with. Iran sees Biden potentially as weak, wants to test how he'll handle a situation like this, and decides to push Hamas to go and attack Israel. I think that's an objective narrative of it. Well, instead, they just put it as, well, the Israelis and the Palestinians are at it again. Israel's just too gosh darn mean for them. Because Israel's on our ally. This is the Blame America First Brigade. Regardless of how evil our enemy is, regardless of how a despicable we have as a foe, they always want to side against America. And, and that's the truth about it with Iran and that connection there. So how do you expect most members of the media may respond in the weeks ahead as they report about President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken's push for a two-state solution? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, we talk we talk about this at Accuracy in Media. The, the coverage of this two-state solution is another thing that's a bit laughable because the only people left pushing a two-state solution are the Americans and the Israelis. The Palestinians and their, their backers in Iran, they don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. They're openly clear about it every time. That, that, you know, um, the Ayatollah in Iran tweets about the destruction of Israel and how we need to have that happen. And again, it's amazing the hypocrisy in social media, just as it is in the mainstream media. Now, Donald Trump gets kicked off Twitter for far lighter things, but the Ayatollah tweets about his desire for the, the destruction of a nation. Jack Dorsey doesn't have any problem with it at all. It's amazing the hypocrisy. Well, and quickly, you mentioned social media. Is there a difference between the bias you're seeing in the comments from media figures on social media platforms compared to, say, print and on television? What's the difference? Well, yeah, here's the difference. When Donald Trump says the most mild of thing, the left-wing media tell us that he's a Nazi. Meanwhile, CNN hired a Nazi. CNN had a contributor who submitted over 50 stories to them that they published. Somebody went back to look at the, at the guy's Twitter feed. He literally was saying things like, hail Hitler. He was rooting for Germany at a soccer match because they killed so many Jews. The, and it wasn't just the first time this has happened. This was the second CNN writer who had openly, not jokingly, praised support for the Nazis. We're supposed to believe that CNN is so morally outraged and that you know these Republicans really are Nazis when they're employing a guy who tweets, hail Hitler. Sickening. And on and on and on it goes. Adam Gillette, Accuracy and Media President, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Some of the same people who tell you that women should have a choice when it comes to abortion are telling students at Rutgers University in New Jersey that they have no choice about getting vaccinated. If you want to attend in-person classes at Rutgers, you must prove that you've received a COVID-19 vaccine. 
Jawohl, mein Führer. This sounds like a dictatorial decree out of Hitler's Germany. Stalin's Russia, or she's China, doesn't it? Well, some Rutgers students responded in protest, demanding my body, my choice. Junior Sarah Rossi organized the protest. She said she's not anti-vax, just against Rutgers making it mandatory to attend class on campus. We are ready to fight back and fight for our liberty, our freedom, and the most corrupt Leftist hypocrisy can't be more obvious, folks. They demand mandatory COVID vaccination when the death risk to students is low, while at the same time screaming, my body, my choice, when it comes to ripping a baby from the womb, an action that actually takes a life. But COVID-19 vaccines, Rutgers and other colleges should follow the science. The average college undergraduate is 21 years old. Their risk of death from COVID, less than one-tenth of 1%. They may be more likely to die from alcohol poisoning, drinking too much alcohol at a frat party or elsewhere than they are from COVID-19. So Rutgers, why the mandatory vaccine requirement to attend in-person classes? You're not following the science. And folks, whatever happened to privacy rights and HIPAA? That's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. You have the legal right to keep your health information private. And let me make it clear here, I'm not saying people should not be vaccinated. If you want the vaccine, go ahead and get vaccinated. If you don't want it, then don't get it. That's the American way. We believe in individual freedom here. Yes, we all probably have lost someone or know someone who has died from this horrid disease. And we grieve the loss of life. And we should be considerate of our neighbors. But let's also be concerned for the lives of the unborn. For the vast majority of Americans, the risk of death from COVID-19 is less than one-tenth of one percent. The last time I checked, the death risk from abortion for unborn babies is 100 percent. So for COVID vaccines, my choice, my body. For the unborn, their choice and their bodies. I'm sure if they had a choice, they'd choose life. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News Channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.